give the people what they want from People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. I'm Prashant from People's Dispatch. I'm Zoe from People's Dispatch. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter, coming to you live every Friday from the People's Dispatch Facebook page and later as a podcast. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. It's great to be with you. It's March 19th today, 2021. March 19th is uh, every year after 2003. Every year, March 19th is the anniversary of the U.S. opening up its illegal war against Iraq, which cost millions of people's lives. Um, it's a day I think that we should always remember, the day the United States went to war against Iraq for no reason, where the U.S. Um, diplomatic personnel lied at the U.N. Security Council. This includes the lies told by U U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell, Later, Colin Powell, at least via his chief of staff, Larry Wilkerson, said that he had been misinformed by the CIA. Either way, um, the war was built on a very, very um, fraudulent foundation. Um, the world did not go along with it. The U.S. went alone. you got to remember this when you read Joe Biden's comment calling Vladimir Putin a killer. Uh, Biden calls Putin a killer. Putin's response is, well... It takes one to know one, and he probably was describing himself. Um, meanwhile, in Anchorage, Alaska, the United States uh, high diplomats, Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, uh, sat down today and talked to two very senior Chinese diplomats, including Wang Yi. Uh, and the two Chinese diplomats, Wang Yi and Yang Jiqi, um, sat down at this meeting in Anchorage, Alaska. Blinken and Sullivan opened the meeting, launching an attack on the Chinese, uh, talking about Xinjiang, talking about Hong Kong, talking about how China is outside the rule-based order. Now, bear in mind, friends, this is on the anniversary of the day that the United States government illegally attacked Iraq. They're lecturing the Chinese about the rules-based system, uh, both Wang and Yang uh, fought back and said that the United States is a country that does policy through hooliganism. Very strong language from the Chinese today at Anchorage, Alaska. Um, Wang returns to Beijing to have a visit with Sergei Lavrov, foreign minister of Russia, who will spend two days uh, in China. Matters are very tense between the United States and China. It's impossible to open this show today on the 19th of March, 2021, without talking about that. You're listening to Give the People What They Want with um, Zoe and Prashant from People's Dispatch, uh, the best movement storyteller available, and me, Vijay, from Globetrotter. I opened uh, today with China and the United States because, really, because this is a serious issue. Uh, we have a U.S. Navy Admiral, Philip Davidson, going before the U.S. Armed Services Committee and talking about how they need $5 billion for the Indo-Pacific Command to pressure China on mil by military means. And Davidson said something which I would have hoped would have been front page news around the world. Davidson said the United States military 
must, and this is a direct quote, he says, the United States military must be prepared to fight against China. Be prepared to fight against China. $27 billion over the next few years to the Indo-Pacific Command, hypersonic cruise missiles, this, that, and the other thing. Very chilling. Uh, Prashant, in Stockholm, the Stockholm Institute, which annually releases its report on arms sales and on military budgets and so on, has released their annual report. It has a pretty interesting headline. Lots of people say, well, the United States is building up its military to confront the buildup of the Chinese military. I was interested to read the Stockholm Institute's headline, at least. I haven't yet got down to reading the report. Prashant, what did you see in the report? Right, Vijay. It's actually a very fascinating report. That it's just a twelve, the twelve-page fact sheet itself gives you a lot of interesting insights into what is happening with regards to arms sales, and this is probably a very good measure of where we are as a world, as a civilization, right now. Uh, on the face of it, one interesting fact is from 2016 to 20, there's been a slight decrease in the overall arms sales, but there are a lot of other trends which are quite harmful or dangerous. And I think some of these trends are going to come back again and again in some of our discussions. For instance, despite all the, uh, say, rhetoric of the United States, Russia and China's arms exports have actually decreased slightly, whereas the United States or France, for that matter, then their arms exports numbers have actually increased when compared to the previous period. Now, if you look at the top five arms exporters, you have the United States, Russia, France, Germany, and China. And like I said, the US and France have increased, Russia and China, their arms exports have increased. If you look at the top importers, you have Saudi Arabia, India, Egypt, Australia, and China again. And it's especially important because what this shows, while globally there has been maybe a slight decline compared to the previous five years, in the Middle East, there's actually been a considerable increase. That's 25% increase in arms imports in the in the Middle East countries. And the, which are the key countries you're talking about here? Like the list obviously shows Saudi Arabia and Egypt, of course, two important countries. Saudi Arabia is especially important because it's the uh, world's largest arms importer in 2016 to 2020. And say uh, 79% of, where, where to say it, 79% of the arms imports of Saudi Arabia come from, from the United States. Now, the question is, where do these weapons go? And it's very, very clear. These weapons are being used to bomb people in Yemen, to bomb children in Yemen, to destroy their lives, to cause what the UN itself has called the greatest humanitarian disaster of our times. And this is a trend that has continued for many, many years. So we've, of course, seen expressions of concern by, say, various officials in the US administration when Trump was in power. Uh, of course, the, by, by the Democrats made a noise, lot of noise about it. But if you go by the cardinal principle of follow the money, I think the, yeah, the, the, the trend is very clear that basically you have this brutal war which is being completely or largely being supported by United States weapons. And if you, the relationship between the US and Saudi Arabia on one hand, the US and Egypt on the other, the US and Israel on the other, the arms relationship, so to speak, I think it gives us perhaps the most clear indication into what is causing conflict in that part of the world. Because the West and the, the United States, irrespective of whoever is in power, likes to blame Iran. But the question here is where are the weapons, where is the money going and where are the weapons coming from? And that's very clear because it's going to all these countries. The other interesting 
uh, fact, of course, is that while India's arms imports have slightly decreased, the India-Israel arms relationship has become has strengthened much more. And what do you call it? So I think 43% of India's arms purchase comes from Israel now. So that's uh, that's a considerable amount that is there, and it's actually a very dangerous trend because across the world, for instance, yesterday we saw, uh, a day before yesterday we saw protests in Canada against buying of drone equipment from Israel, which is manufactured by Elbit Systems. In the UK, Elbit Systems factories have been targeted by protesters. But in India, we, what we've seen is, especially since the Modi government came to power, there's been a very close nexus between India and Israel in terms of technology in general, but especially military technology. So I think what we the trends basically see are not very positive either because the fact sheet also talks about a lot of trade uh, arms deals that are already in place haven't been executed. So for instance, you have the United States, United Arab Emirates, which is on the verge of signing quite a few deals. Uh, some of them didn't get completed in 2020, but those could be quite big in this coming period as well. The UAE, as we know, is another key member of this war on Yemen. And I think a lot of uh, our analysis of, uh, what do you call, West Asia, the politics of it often kind of fails to take in account this fact that this is the amount of money, this is the amount of uh, sheer weapons of murder that are being, uh, uh, and it's interesting because uh, the war in Iraq was, done on the argument of weapons of mass destruction. But this is actually what is actually happening on the ground, despite all those protestations, this kind of uh, sales, and there's no sign of it coming down either. Well, you know, you're talking about largely military sales, sales by arms dealers to militaries. Of course, a very big industry is sales to police forces. And we don't, you know, we should um, write to Cipri and say you need to track the police sales as well. In November 2019, the U.S. State Department brokered through a company called X International, run by a Haitian man by the name of Kappa, who used to be in the U.S. military, um, brokered a sale to the Haitian National Police of riot gear and so on. You've, you've seen in Paraguay, in Haiti, the use of this highly sophisticated, repressive military equipment uh, by the police both in Haiti and in Paraguay, we've seen this repressive stuff, but we've seen people just continue to be out on the street. Zoe, what's happening in Paraguay? What's happening in Haiti? What are we seeing in these protests? Why are people on the street? Yes, well, as you said, there's a great increase in, in repression. And we see, you know, globally how repressive governments are working together, how they're buying not only training, but weapons. I mean, it's a whole, you know, international level of collusion. And it's actually quite interesting to look at these partnerships and agreements um, on a deeper level. But um, within, you know, right now in Haiti and Paraguay, people have been on the streets for weeks. In Paraguay, this protest started at the beginning of March. In Haiti, of course, we've been covering this. The latest wave of protests began in January, but, you know, the people of Haiti have been, you know, en masse protesting for the past three years. Um, but I guess I'll start with Paraguay because I think it's kind of a less known case. Um, Paraguay is often a really forgotten country in Latin America. It's landlocked. You know, people don't really, maybe they know about the coup that happened in 2012, the parliamentary coup against Zugo. But beyond that, it's kind of, yeah, it's between Brazil and, you know, uh, Argentina. But what's really going on there? 
Um, we've done a couple of stories of people's dispatch about these protests that began in the beginning of March. Um, like so many protests we've seen throughout the pandemic, um, people have just been brought to the brink um, with the mismanagement of the pandemic. It's not enough. It's not, <laughs> not only are they losing their livelihoods because of the economic impact of the lockdown, the economic impact, just the global deepening of this economic crisis, which we know didn't start um, with uh, the lockdown has been, you know, deepened. Um, but in addition, in a lot of countries, the, the death rate, the infection rate, the impact on people's lives of actually their family members dying, not getting health care, you know, the desperation of the breakdown of the public health system is not just, we talk a lot about how the health systems are deteriorating, but the actual toll that this plays in people's lives um, is, is, is really too great to measure. Of course, we see this in Brazil as well. And so in Paraguay, you know, the government had been really mismanaging the pandemic. People have talked about um, how, you know, healthcare workers still weren't getting proper PPE. Um, you know, there just hasn't been enough investment in protecting the people and putting their needs first. And so people started uh, protesting once there was a massive spike in COVID cases, a big spike in deaths as well. Of course, the numbers, when you compare it to the rest of the region, the numbers themselves, absolute numbers are not super high, but the increase that was seen and the impact on the population has been extremely high. Um, you know, the, the president of Paraguay is from the Colorado party. And this is the party that was of the last dictator in Paraguay. So there's, you know, a direct, direct legacy to this repressive politics. Um, a number of things that happened under this regime of Abdo Benitez, Mario Abdo Benitez. Um, you know, we talked about in our first article about the protests, how in, in November there was, in September, there was a series of kind of scandals revo uh, involving the murder of two young Argentinian girls. This has actually created kind of an international um, issue because uh, two young girls were murdered by the army. And so people just have had enough. They're on the streets. They've been on the streets of Paraguay, Asuncion, in the capital um, for the past, since, you know, March 3rd. Um, now, in a really amazing kind of show of support and force, uh, peasant organizations have joined, you know, the young people in the cities. They're doing a march um, from the rural regions to the city to support these protests. And essentially the people are calling for the resignation of this right-wing government that has shown time and time again that they're not protecting the people, that people are suffering and that they don't really care. There have been a couple cosmetic uh, changes, you know, the health minister resigned because um, the parliament actually passed a resolution saying that he had to, um, but really there hasn't been much response from the executive government. And then, of course, in Haiti, people continue to be on the streets. Now we're almost a month and a half into the illegal uh, overstaying of Jovenel Moise's um, term. Of course, according to the constitution, his term ended on February 7th. He remains in power, thanks to the United States, thanks to the OAS. Um, and people are continuing to be on the streets. They're pr protesting in front of these symbolic sites, for example, the US embassy, and calling on the US to stop their hypocritical position towards Haiti. If they claim to support uh, human rights in Latin America, why are they supporting a dictator? Why are they supporting someone who's violating the constitution? Well, um, this is of course a problem we've seen globally, this issue of uh, where, what I suppose is called lawfare, where 
various means are used to overthrow governments or to or to uh, delegitimize uh, people who are speaking out uh, we've seen recently some of this get overturned um, lula you know had his lawfare conviction invalidated uh, gave a tremendous 3 hour speech uh, laying out uh, attack on on the bolsonaro government whose approval rating then plummeted we saw in bolivia the uh, interim president who came in after the coup uh, the coup of november 2019 get arrested uh, sometimes these things are reversed so history you know as we keep saying on this show history goes in zigs and zags uh, this show this is give the people what they want with zoe prashant and me from people's dispatch and globe trotter with you every friday but also of course on the regular podcasting uh, platforms and boy there are so many of them who knew that there were so many podcasting platforms um britain has been convulsed uh, around the death of a, a young woman sarah evelard uh, police you know the police is quick to go and attack protesters they just don't want to investigate when a young woman disappears turns out well her disappearance was related to the metropolitan police department people are very upset Uh, in the united kingdom people had been very upset 10 years ago in egypt when they went out on the street now once again this charge of spreading fake news have we not seen this before prashant what is happening in egypt and why do these activists keep getting picked up by the authorities um, on this charge of spreading fake news absolutely vijay like we talked about the arms sales and how egypt tops there uh similarly it's uh, egypt's record is just appalling on the issue you mentioned and the most recent example of this is it's in fact it's quite tragic when i when we go back and check for instance the pd archives on egypt because it's just case after case so what we saw very recently was that sana saif a 27 year old activist who like you said in the uh, arab spring protest 10 years ago she was on the she was at tahrir square she was documenting many of these issues after that after abdul fatel cc became a dictator came to power in 2013 she spoken out continuously on these issues her whole family has been persecuted of course we'll come to that but the recent news is that she has been sentenced to one year and six months in prison on uh, you know the, i think the charges need to be really talked about here and just just for the absurdity of it so it's spreading fake news disturbing security and peace and disrupting the institutions of the state from their work and wait for it insulting a police officer on a facebook post so these are basically the charges for which somebody is going to jail for 18 years and she has already been in prison since june that's last year and the circumstances of her uh, imprisonment are equally important because the day before she her mother and sister were <clears throat> had been protesting because their brother abdul al abdul fateh has been again in jail without a trial since september 2019 he was in jail for 5 years before that so they're you know sitting outside the prison they're protesting they're beaten up by a group of women in plain clothes who were probably police personnel the next day these three activists are going to file a complaint on this the fact that they were beaten out beaten up <clears throat> brutally while protesting peacefully and then uh, sara saif is abducted and after that this is when the uh, for, since then she has been held she was abducted for a while then presented in court and now she has been 
sentenced to 18 months in jail on these really absurd charges and what's important to note here of course is that this is absolutely not yeah not a outlier incident or anything of this sort uh, last year uh, her mother her aunt nor the novelist others all they were also arrested because they were demanding that during covid prisoners should be given proper protection you know in the time of the pandemic for that they were again detained for a couple of days just a few months ago we had members of the egyptian institute for uh, the the eipr basically uh, the egyptian initiative for production of rights they were arrested again after meeting with ambassadors of western countries we had journalists like the journalists of mada masar the editor in chief of mada masar other journalists women journalists being arrested again for writing about the state the number of prisoners is believed to be political prisoners is believed to be around somewhere in the realm of say 60000 or something and that is a huge number for a country like egypt and there has been almost no accountability there have been protests in 2019 and 20 each of which was followed by mass arrests again and again very little action from the courts and <clears throat> despite all this we have egypt being supported supported by successive united states administrations european administrations primarily because it's such a vital cog in the west asian strategy so whether it be yemen whether it be libya the saudi arabia egypt israel nexus is the cornerstone of us foreign policy in this region and so anything goes as far as uh, say egyptian policy is concerned and it's been extremely repressive political parties there for instance facing a massive crackdown the left facing a massive crackdown so i think that it's probably one of the greatest uh, tragedies of uh, the post arab spring situation the kind of hope that it engendered in what al uh, sisi especially with the aid of the saudi arabians and the united states has done after that about a month ago the un secretary general antonio guterres um, made a very important comment he said that the world is experiencing a pandemic of human rights abuses um you know uh, there are medics being arrested in countries because they are accused of spreading fake news i mean india is i think one of the countries with the largest number of arrests on this fake news charge it's used extremely politically um against people who are asking questions and so on you look at the case of that young woman disha ravi you know um was produced a kind of toolkit to assist uh, farmers and was arrested on that charge uh, you know there there really needs to be some kind of public accounting of of uh, of this whole online um you know accusations of doing things online um and and people getting picked up but yes uh, we'll follow this case carefully as you said her brother ala has been you know in and out of prison in egypt and i mean we 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 are seized of this i think all of us are uh, to look carefully again zigs and zags um, there is a zig there is a zag uh, ecuador enters its second stage of elections you know uh, i mean there is a kind of overwhelming democracy in some of these latin american constitutions where there's a first round a second round and there's so much in between this period between the first round where andres arauz um, won the first round but not by enough to um, you know set aside the second round this period has been quite bizarre we're seeing some very strange political things happen in ecuador very strange zoe please make sense of this for us well it's it's a big task so i'll do my best but it, i think you're right to say it's been very strange 
it's almost like there's been so much happening with regards to the first round scrutiny, a lot, lot of fake news from the right wing, a um, lot of accusations back and forth. It's almost felt like people have forgot there's a second round and it's been, the discourse has been so much around the first round, what could potentially happen? I mean, there have been so many weird occurrences, which I'll try to get into some of them, but it, it has been weird. Um, I mean, on April 11th, which is kind of D-Day for Latin America because we have Ecuador second round, uh, Bolivian local election second round, Chile and Peru general elections. And of course with Chile, we're also having the um, elections for the constitutional um, assembly. So, I mean, there's just, there's a lot, there's a lot going on on that day. But specifically when we're looking at Ecuador, I mean, this has been a key point of our coverage. It's been a key focus for a lot of people across the world just because of what it represents. I mean, we had Lenin Moreno who gave this complete turn towards neoliberalism. Um, and in these elections, that are coming up on uh, uh, April 11th, which will finally, after a lot of scrutiny, a lot of back and forth with the National Electoral Council and different kind of uh, courts that deal with elections, it has been um, officially confirmed um, that it will be a runoff between Guillermo Lasso, who's a conservative banker, uh, and Andres Arauz, who you mentioned, of course, won the first round, but not by enough to win in the first round. Um, in the background, and while all of this has been happening, the other candidate, Yaku Perez, who is from the Pachacuti party, who claims, claims being the operative word here, to be an eco-socialist representative of indigenous movements, which of course, I think this needs to be unpacked because a lot of major indigenous movements in Ecuador actually don't support his candidacy. They see him as a kind of neoliberal agent who's already expressed support for having a U.S. And a free trade agreement with the United States is so anti-Korea, is so anti-Korea, so anti-citizens uh, revolution that his policies have just swung back towards uh, the United States, towards, you know, following uh, the diktats of imperialism. You know, there's just a lot. Um, and so he has been trying to, he was trying for a while to contest the first round elections alleging fraud. Um, you know, he was supporting a lot of the fake news claims that Andres Arauz had received peculiar, peculiar funding from illegal sources, you know, just creating a whole hub hub around these first rounds. He also called for protests against the National Electoral Council. Finally, uh, this body has kind of ruled um, and that they have dismissed There's the Electoral Dispute Court so there are all these different kind of legal bodies, institutions that are dealing with these elections. They have ruled and they have dismissed his allegations of fraud. Um, and so finally it's been confirmed, yes, it will be Lasso and Arauz. And all opinion polls, you know, put Arauz first um, and have saying that he has a clear advantage over Lasso. Of course, Ecuador has been submerged in a neoliberal crisis. So it's not surprising that a banker who wants to privatize, who wants to go even further than Lenny Moreno went, would not be well-liked. So, I mean, we're hoping for a left victory in this case. We'll see what happens. I mean, as many experts have pointed out, nothing is off the table. So we have to be very, very uh, careful and follow what's happening in Ecuador. Follow what's happening. Uh, this is, of course, an axiom of, of uh, reporting. Follow what's happening. Keep an eye on things. In 2009, 
um, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs is a rather clunky title. And then it goes on. It's the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in the Palestinian Territories. Uh, first started keeping numbers in 2009 of Israeli demolition of Palestinian homes. I remember in 2010 uh, in the West Bank uh, observing a house being demolished. Um, the United Nations, in fact, had noted that house being demolished, not just house. It was actually a street that was demolished by bulldozers. Just went past the anniversary of the death of a young American woman, Rachel Corey, who you know, was killed by one of those bulldozers uh, as the Israeli state demolished illegally Palestinian homes. Well, on the 16th of March, you know, remember, uh, keep an eye on things, keep track of things. This same UN office doggedly every year releases a report on house demolitions. And on the 16th of March, they reported that in the first two months of this year, they have seen an acceleration of house demolition. And Lynn Hastings and, and other people at, at the office have made it very clear that the data is shocking. Um, Israel is on a um, is really on, on a warpath to cleanse uh, the West Bank of the Palestinians, to essentially to um, annex this region, but annex it without its people. They want to create enough pain so that the people leave the West Bank, go to Jordan and so on. It's what is sometimes called the four-state solution. In other words, to expel Palestinians to Egypt, uh, to Lebanon, to Jordan and to Syria. Um, not to have any Palestinians in what the Israeli state, in fact, calls Greater Israel. It's very shocking developments. Uh, keep an eye on things. Um, yes, it seems like it's always the same sort of atrocities that keep happening over and over again. But as reporters, as, as sensitive people, concerned people, I think our watchword is keep an eye on things. Tell other people about these things. Build movements around atrocities. I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Uh, history moves in zigs and zags. It's not always the bad side that wins. Um, Jeanette Anias is in prison. Lula gives a big speech. Um, the people came out to protest the death, the murder of a young woman in England. Uh, lots of people in Haiti continue to protest to bring finally the fruit of the 1804 Haitian Revolution uh, to bear. It's a funny business, our business of telling the news. Uh, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what you think of give the people what they want. We come to you every Friday. It's Zoe and Prashant from People's Dispatch. I highly recommend that you go and read People's Dispatch once or twice a day. Once is enough, I think. Once a day. Um, don't really bother with, with the other people. Come there, get informed, come to us every Friday. It's a little dose of reality. At least that's what we think. Um, again, from People's Dispatch and Globetrotter, you've been listening to and watching. Give the people what they want. See you next week. See you next week, comrades. Oh.